Welcome, William Dalrymple. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to Free Speech Debate. So, William, I'll start with the question about the Jaipur Literature Festival. Essentially, we understand that there were a lot of media reports and one of the professors here at St. Anthony's College, Faisal Devji, also took the view that Salman Rushdie could have come or at least the video link could have gone ahead and that the threat of violence was exaggerated. Now, I understand from your Guardian article that you have given a very different reflection of the facts of the case and what the actual situation on the ground was. But I would be grateful if you could just give us an overview of what the situation was. Sure. Um, the first thing we said was that Salman came to Jaipur three years ago, whatever it was, 2009. Um, yeah. Check that, or whatever date it was, the, the, the first Jaipur. Yeah. And um, it was a huge success. He's at his very best in that sort of situation. He was generous to the younger writers. He uh, refused all security. He wandered without slightest problem through the crowds. And it was a huge thing for us. This time, about three weeks before the festival, Salman rang up, got me in Delhi about 11 o'clock at night, and said that he was noticed that we'd just gone online with the with the list of our speakers and that he wasn't on it, and why wasn't he on it? And at that stage, we should have said to him very clearly, Salman, look, you know, this is not sensible. There's you know, an election here. There, there will be security issues if we put your name up. Uh, instead, we said, fine, we'll put, it, we'll put it straight up. And it was up within by breakfast the following morning by... 24 hours it was in the media, and within 48 hours it was the beginning of rumbles. Uh, and that was the big mistake that we made, in, in my view. Then the second mistake we made was that I can't remember at what stage and by whom, but it got out into the media about the video link, which was our backup plan. But again, that got out. And so at every stage, our plans to show someone were, had been made public. And in the very tense atmosphere of Jaipur at that particular point during an election, and I think there would have been absolutely no problem, as there was subsequently with the India Today appearance, if we just said to someone, this isn't wise, and argued with him. That's incidentally what we did with Ayan Hassiani, who again, controversial figure, written very strikingly about Islam. And uh, we put her on agenda and allowed to send you, but again, didn't announce until the day before and, and sprung her on the crowd. Uh, and I think that in, in a situation, in, in a volatile place like Jaipur, is the only way you can do this. You can put on whoever you want, but you, I think you have to take precautions about who you announce and who you show publicly. And you talked about the, the reporting. Yes, I mean, I think anyone that's ever been in a, uh, in a major media event of any sort is yeah. familiar with the way that you have, in a sense, primary reports on the ground, which tend to be accurate. And then you have a kind of ripple effect. And the further that people are from the event, obviously, the more, the more confusions and misrepresentations that can take place and can be reported. And so, I mean, an example was Pankaj Mishra, who, who is a good friend, and, and, but has never actually been to the festival. And he was writing from London and reported that the festival had descended into chaos, which is I'm sure how it must have appeared if people reading many of the media reports. The reality was, of course, that we had record crowds in, in many ways. It was our most successful festival. Uh, and we had a whole range of free speech debates. When I first heard that about the readings of Stan Versus during an extraordinary session on prison diaries by Kashmir prisoners. We had three prisoners, all of whom published their, their diaries of, of what had happened to them in Indian prisons. This was going on in the front lawn to a crowd of about 10,000 people uh, when I got the, the, a text from someone saying, um, why is the reading of Stan Versus being stopped? And I text about what reading I'll go and find out. William, just a, a couple of questions on that. Firstly, I mean, do you think that by 
cancelling the video link that you were basically yielding to the threats of violence. And secondly, in a country such as India, the world's largest democracy, should you have to withhold information about who's speaking just to try and prevent uproar of any kind? Well, those are the absolutely crucial questions. Well, the first thing we said is we didn't cancel the video link. In the end, the decision was taken for us by our host of the, of the palace. Sure. He pulled the rug. The situation prior to him pulling the rug was in the police control room, I suppose, five minutes into when the video link was due to begin. And sitting in the police control room was the Jaguar chief of police, the security, the policeman in charge of security for the festival. Me, Sanjoy, the producer, Namata, my co-director, and Barker Dutch, who was doing the interview. And the policeman gave us uh, his assessment. And the policeman said that there are now in the venue, we've identified at least, I think he said 60, but there's possibly more activists uh, with Tablighi kit on, which is sort of, I mean, they've got their sub-Arkanese's hitched up, bearded activists who are milling around. They've gone into every one of the five venues. They have started taking chairs. They're talking about throwing the chairs at the stage as an initial. We've got them followed. We have plainclothes pieces behind every single one of them. Uh, we can bundle them away, though we don't know how many there are who are in plainclothes. There are an estimated five to 600 gathering in a crowd outside and more marching towards the venue from Gemma Masjid. You have in the venue at this particular moment 10 to 15,000 people. There's one exit, uh, which is a narrow gateway. There are kids. So we have great crowds of school children. There are a whole variety of old people. It's extremely crowded. His assessment was that we could brazen it out. We could go ahead with the video, and he could bundle away the actors as they erupted in, into violence, if they erupted into violence. Uh, but he said he could, he could easily get out of hand, and he reminded us that only... Uh, three weeks earlier, there'd been a similar incident of a Muslim groups protesting in Barrackport, which had ended up with, again, you can check the figures, but I think it was between 9 and 15 people being shot dead and police firing. The room then divided. Another another comparable situation, bear in mind, that was discussed was that previous year, in a religious festival in Jodhpur Fort, the next time along in, in Rajasthan, Jodhpur, there had been, I think, again, you can check the figures, but 40 to 60 people crushed to death in the stampede during the festival there. So that was on our minds. And Barker and I were saying we should just go ahead with this. Someone within the studio, the crowds gathered on the front lawn, and Namita and Sanjoy were against it. And at that point, the hotel owner said, I'm sorry, I can't take responsibility. I will have to take legal consequences if there is a riot, and I will, I will be arrested by the police, and, and, and I'm putting the riot on this. Now, in retrospect, I think that Sanjoy and Namita were right. And I think that I'm very relieved that I didn't argue them into going ahead with the link because, and I thought, and I've thought about this a huge amount since January. And I really don't think that in a, in a volatile situation with a police force that routinely shoots crowds of peaceful protesters in a venue which where people have come at your invitation to attend a festival where the venue is massively overcrowded already, where even you know a few people throwing chairs could have ignited a rush for the exit. I think we did the right thing. It, wouldn't, it wasn't the heroic thing in principle. It would be fantastic always to stand up for free speech in all situations. But I think in a situation where there is an, a very high likelihood of death in the event of going ahead with a public event for which you are responsible, I think that we took the right decision. Because we, it wasn't a, a black and white decision between free speech and closing someone down. 
The important point, uh, which I think hasn't been emphasized enough, was that Barker and the video link went ahead. Someone was, remained in the studio and gave the interview to the same interviewer who had come to interview him. And it went out an hour later on NBTV, that interview, done from the festival venue. All that didn't happen was it was not broadcast live to the festival crowds. I think that sums it up quite nicely because essentially I think you're saying that the risks outweighed the benefits hugely and you're right that it went out one hour later so I don't think it made... It was, it was the same interview. But I I'd, I'd wanted to ask you about the point that you made a little earlier that you think that the biggest mistake was that you announced it earlier and this gave the opportunity to these fundamentalist groups to sort of um, go after public attention and make a spectacle of this whole situation. Again, I think, I think yeah, one has to be very careful here that one doesn't fall into other pitfalls. I mean, one of the things we worried about when when um, the police were saying that they could bundle people away was the prospect, of, an ugly prospect, which would have been peaceful Muslim protesters with beards, you know, maybe with fists in the air, being thrown out of a venue by the Jones of the Jaipur police force, who are not known for their gentle handling and their diplomatic manners. Yeah. And so the other thing way out is the fact that you know, there are a lot of people out there who, of the Muslim protesters who had gathered to protest our invasion to Salman, the vast majority, I would say 90%, were respectable middle class people who would have, and were not threatening violence in any way. Um, no, exactly. That's that's why I wanted to ask you that. Do you think that the media, our 24-hour media circus in India, where you have, I think, about 60, 24-hour news channels or some such number, and they're constantly increasing, do you think that this kind of a media circus has given small fringe groups the opportunity to highlight their cause and run after public attention? And that these kind of incidents, like the this whole Salman Rushdie debacle, but also other incidents like groups protesting against the screening of Sanjay Kak's film on Kashmir, NDU, and numerous other incidents where fringe elements, as you said, that there were probably only a few people who were protesting, but it's... I, did, I didn't say that, I said that the vast majority. We had quite, what happened on the day, just to, just to be clear about this, is that from the beginning, there was a whole... We had great delegations from a whole variety of different uh, Muslim groups. But by the end, the guys who were turning up looked completely different from those sort of stuff. The guys who turned up on the last day trying to create trouble were, by all accounts, paid gunders who were uh, attached to various political parties, including all sorts of very rough-looking sorts. Yeah. But, but sorry, but my short, short point was that do you think that the 24-hour media... Yeah. Yes, I think, I think it's, a, it's a real problem. That uh, it fuels this kind of But I think, it, I think it comes with the territory. I think you can't say, you know, we want a free media and then say that you, you can't allow fringe groups to be heard. I think it comes with democracy. I mean, do you think that this kind of media reporting which focuses on sensationalism needs to be curbed in some way, if not by the Supreme Court, by then by some other body? Or do you think that we should, we have to accept these as costs of having a free media? I take the second view. I think, I think that there's no way that you can start curbing reporters and telling them what they can and can't report. Uh, I don't think you can start passing laws. I think, I think that it is a measure of the strength of Indian democracy in Indian media. If you have this cacophony of voices reporting stuff, 24 hour news, it's one of the great strengths of, of modern India. And it's one of the great things which keep democracy and keep politicians accountable. 
I think you're, you're, you're entering very dodgy territory where you're legislating to restrict or, or press uh, journalists to avoid certain subjects. Incidentally, since you've spoken about the Kashmir diaries, I don't know if you've been following the news items about other people who've spoken about Kashmir or the right to self-determination or this uh, Sanjay Kak's film screening. When did this screening, this issue take place? Sanjay, I know, but this is a recent incident. Yeah, this is, I think, in the last two, three months where his film was supposed to be screened in DU and again there was this threat of violence. But they just employed more security. I mean, obviously, it was on a much smaller scale than the Jaipur Literature Festival. So they were able to employ more security and go ahead with the screening. But do you think that Kashmir is a exceptionally sensitive issue where we, where this the laws that India has against sedition, against hate speech, etc., have sort of clamped down on reason, debate, and discussion on the issue? I think Kashmir is the big. Achilles' heel of Indian democracy and, and the stuff that's gone on in Kashmir, the, the mass arrests, the torture, the oppression of the Kashmiri people, the failure to offer them any sort of self-determination about their future, I think is the single most, the single saddest and most reprehensible issue that Indian democracy has had to face. As a young reporter, I, I was covering massacres in Kashmir. I was there at the Dakar Bridge massacre, interviewing the survivors in, in the hospital who had been two peaceful protesters. Elderly civil servants with placards and gunned down on the bridge and bayoneted and driven around town in a, in a dumper truck before being dumped to the Kashmir police and regularly horrific acts of, uh, of oppression of human rights uh, go on there. And I think people in, in the major metros in India are unaware of the scale of the oppression and even worse, sometimes are aware of it and, and approve of it. And I, I do think it's a, it, it, yes, I think it is an issue which is, is the biggest hate in democracy is, is what's going on in Kashmir. Just going back to religious sensibilities, I mean, do you think this is also one of the biggest challenges? Because it seems that there is this attitude of, I'll respect your taboo if you respect mine, just to ensure communal harmony, even if that means uh, foregoing the principle of free speech. Oh dear, yes, and you have competitive sentiment hurting. And you're right, and it's a very difficult issue. On one hand, particularly the Islamic community in India, suffer a whole variety of, of, of subtle discriminations. And there is often insults offered to them, which add to that burden of discrimination and, uh, and marginalization. On the other hand, at an event like Jaipur, it exists so as to be able to discuss issues. And in general, I think you know, these things can be discussed. What, 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 what is the dangerous combination is that when, is when um, something is whipped up, by a media group, an interest group reacts, and you get a potentially noxious situation, particularly a situation where you have a police force who, who are ready to open fire and, and kill people. And it is a different thing. It's a very different thing holding a debate uh, with a controversial speaker in a city like Jaipur, in the middle of the old city, to holding an equivalent event at Hayomwai or, or New York Penn. There are, there are limits to these things in India. And in uh, India, religion seems to be one of them. Um, our director of the project, okay, Timothy yeah. Gartanash, met with a group of Indian MPs and they looked through our 10 principles on our site and they said these are all fine apart from principle 7. We respect the believer but not necessarily the content of the belief. This is something that we just simply can't have in India. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I totally agree with your principle. Mm -hmm. I think that the, I understand where the MPs are coming from. It's not what one would wish, but there's no question that that view is widely held in it. And the MPs are, I think, reflecting a, a widely held opinion. And I was very intrigued during this whole Jaipur debate how widely it was accepted 
in it is uh, in it, there are limits, not just religious ones. I think you'd have many fewer takers for that set of principles in middle class India than you would in, in, in other countries. Uh, it is widely accepted that, that the debate that has to be held within limits. So it's a, it's, it's a complicated situation what, if you're in a society that, that don't accept those sets of principles. How far do these principles stand universally? I mean, if you, I mean, if you were to take a, you know, a straw poll in Indian cities, I think you'd find many people who, who would say the same as your MPs. And what do you think needs to be done in that kind of a situation? Because I think the MPs also, apart from this principle, they also strongly defended the laws in India which clamped down on debate on Kashmir, etc., like the laws against sedition and against hate speech. And they were basically coming from the standpoint that you cannot have any fixed set of principles that a project based in a university cannot sort of hope to prescribe a set of principles which would be acceptable in different cultural contexts. So do you think that it is possible even hypothetically to have a set of principles on which there would be consensus across across different cultural contexts? I think what your MPs, <coughs> the response of your MPs demonstrates that I think that that particular uh, principle is, is one that would be strongly debated in India and, and therefore I suppose is not universal. I think, again, the context has to be remembered that there is that many of these laws and these taboos have to be understood against the background where unscrupulous groups and unscrupulous politicians have manipulated religious stereotypes to cause riots, to, to discriminate against minority religious groups, and that many of these laws were framed originally in colonial, in colonial times to stop groups like the nascent RSS in the 1930s, causing riots uh, and, and using literature inspired by the Nazis and so on to target Muslim groups in ghetto situations and to preach hate against them. Those, I think, were the were the principles on which these uh, laws about hurting religious sentiments were, were framed. And however restrictive we find them in a, in a situation like Jaipur, they're there for a reason. And in a, in, a, in a world where you can have the Gujarat riots, where one of what is now one of the most popular chief ministers among middle-class voters, Modi, can organize carnage, the state organized carnage on the scale that happened in, uh, in Gujarat. It, it, is a, it is a very different situation. This is a point that was made in, in, in one piece published afterwards, that Indian liberal middle class values exist in, a, in quite a small bubble. And, and what happened in Jaipur was it, it came against the very muddy reality of a North Indian town with a brutal police force. So we just wanted to ask you that how do you think the sort of the advent of the internet or the popularization of the internet in India, how that has affected the whole issue of freedom of speech and freedom of information, which has also been included in our list of principles. Because on the one hand, it opens up gateways to information and it allows people to easily get information. But in the recent past, we've seen that the same backward-looking attitudes towards freedom of speech are also being applied the internet with this case against Google and Facebook etc for screening content as far as the government and the judiciary is concerned they definitely want to enforce the same backward looking principles of controlling free speech even though the freedom to information is being expanded and as far as the freedom of information is 
concerned India is sort of leading the way in some senses with the RTI Act. So do you think there's some inherent contradiction here that on the one hand we're moving forward as far as freedom of information is concerned, but moving backward as far as freedom of speech is concerned, especially on the internet? I don't think the internet impacted at all on Jaipur, uh, but I think it's extremely alarming that um, the Indian government is talking about censoring Facebook and, and, and heading towards the, the Chinese model on, on Google. And, and I think I was very alarmed that one of our speakers, Capital Sibyl, was, uh, was talking in those terms, and it's certainly not something I would agree with uh, at all. I mean, I would say one of the parallels between the Jaipur Festival and maybe the sort of clampdown on the internet is that there was a criminal case that was lodged over offensive content that one journalist claimed would create communal riots across the country. And this was taken very seriously. So again, we're seeing this sort of threat concern, of the threat of violence being yeah. used to clamp down on free speech. Yeah, I, I think you're right. There is an impact. And the general atmosphere among Indians Politicians is definitely um, towards increasing censorship. The Philippines has been all over this over a range of different issues. The um, the many Ramayanas issues. You follow this? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, and, and the banning of, of, of the removal of those books from the, uh, from the syllabuses. And there's also one that you mentioned in your Guardian piece. It's the book on Gandhi that was banned in yeah, in, in, in Gujarat, all cases exactly. Yeah. And, and these things are often done you know, very arbitrarily. The Levy Belt, who, who was at Jaipur talking about his book instead, was, you know, the reporting in Indian media of what that book contained had very little had very little to do with what was actually in the book. Like just as what is someone is accused of saying the Stanley Versus has uh, has very little to do with what the perception of what that book contains among Indian Muslims. There is this impression that Rashi simply is, is, is going out and um, on a full-scale assault on the Quran and all, all the Muslims believe, and, and it's very difficult to debate with people on this, and, and they just tell you this, and they say, <laughs> in your face, just, no, no, this is what he says, uh, and, and uh, have you read it? No. So how can you judge? Oh, I know. <laughs>